Welcome to the Eastern Current Saltwater Fishing Podcast presented by Outdoors by Owner. OBO helps the outdoorsmen find the perfect home to rent for their next outdoor pursuit. Whether you're looking for a house right on the shallow water flats of Florida Bay with world-class sight fishing right out your back door, or you want to find a weekend mountain getaway for you and your family, OBO has the house for you. To check out all their incredible properties, visit go-obo.com. I'm your host, Captain Judd Brock, and today I talk with Captain Wayne McMasters of Tidewater on the Fly, all about wintertime speckled trout fishing on the Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries. Wayne is known for catching citation speckled trout on the fly rod and recently boated a 29 and a half inch monster. In this episode, he shares with us exactly how they managed to catch this fish, as well as many other citations that day, all on the fly. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Eastern Current on Patreon. There you'll be able to find our weekly Ramp Talk podcast as well as other video content that you can't find on YouTube. Well, guys, hope you all enjoy the episode. I've teamed up with Florida Fishing Products to outfit my guide service with their spinning reels, braided line, and fluorocarbon leader, and I'm looking forward to giving you some real-world feedback on their gear. I've been enjoying their Osprey CE for all my light tackle, redfish, and speckled trout, and Resolute for my beefier setups for Big Reds, Cobia, Tarpon, and Jacks. I'm looking forward to helping further their mission to equip anglers to fish better, which couldn't align closer with our values here at Eastern Current. Be sure to check out their website, floridafishingproducts.com, or ask about them at your local tackle shop. Temple Fork Outfitters is the rod of choice for all of us here at Eastern Current. Whether we're fly fishing for shallow water redfish, sight casting to cobia from a tower, or dropping live pinfish to grouper in 100 feet of water, they have the rod for the job. Their customer service is unmatched by any rod company out there, and their rods can take the beating of everyday guide use without any issues. My favorite rod for redfish and speckled trout is their 7-foot medium-light tactical inshore spin rod. Be sure to check out their website, tforods.com. Wayne, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast with me. I know people are going to be excited to have you on, but uh, you guys, this is Wayne. He he is a fly fishing and light tackle guide, like I said, up on the Chesapeake Bay. But man, why don't we start by you kind of just giving your backstory, how you got into fishing and how it's brought you to where you are today. Well, thanks, Judd. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. A uh, big fan of yours and your podcast, been listening for a while, so this is a treat for me. Um, yeah, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and then my father had a place down on the Chester River in the upper part of the bay in Maryland. So just about every weekend, we would go down, and it was a little cabin right on Chester River, and uh, that section of the river is, is mostly freshwater. We did have some stripers that would move up, but mostly what we fished with for was uh, bass and crappie and bluegill and and, uh, and even carp and, and catfish and and so uh, I did a lot of fishing on the weekends with my father, and he was really the inspiration, like so many of us, uh, you know, with our kids. And so uh, my dad got me into fishing, and I did a little bit of fly fishing when I was a kid, mostly for brim and crappie. And then I got into a little bit of fly fishing when I was a teenager for um, trout, um, White Clay Creek up in Newark in the lower part of Pennsylvania. And... Uh, and then when I moved to Virginia, I came down to Virginia to play football at William and Mary and, and uh, really enjoyed the college and went down to Duke from for PT school. So I'm a physical therapist also and continue to see patients one day a week. I do a very specific examination, so I'm not treating anymore, but I do continue to do these examinations one day a week. And uh, and so had a practice, physical therapy practice for 30 years and, and fished recreationally. And then... Um, in 2008, went out to Colorado, fished the Arkansas River with one of my former teammates, and three of us went out, and we had just a great time. And I sort of got smitten with the fly fishing bug and uh, had been fishing with Chris Newsom up on the Middle Peninsula. And, uh, you know, he had kind of taken me under his wing and, and got me learning how to double haul. And, you know, Chris made me a much better angler. 
And, uh, and then two years ago, I started my charter business and uh, fish here kind of all over the lower part of the peninsula in Hampton Road. So I don't really go north of the York River. Um, that's Chris's territory, but um, work closely with current culture up in Richmond, fly shop up in Richmond, and um, and kind of fish all over Hampton Roads, out in the bay. Uh, don't go to the eastern shore of Virginia, so I stay on the western shore. But uh, anywhere from kind of the York River south all the way down into the lower stretches of uh, Deep Creek and the southern branch of the Elizabeth River. So I can be in any of the branches of the Liz or maybe over in Rudy Inlet if I got somebody that wants to, you know, pop a bunch of small specks and try and get in with some bigger specks in the back there. And uh, and so kind of keep my boat on a trailer. And in the summertime, I fish a bigger boat out the bay for Cobia and I come out of Hampton. So uh, I come out of uh, Back River. And uh, and so that's kind of the, the, the uh, quick resume. <laughs> that's awesome man. that was a lot in a mouthful no that's perfect that's perfect it's uh i hope it stays this way for y'all but it seems like the fishery that you're in is just such an un maybe not untapped because any fishery you're in you see the pressures you kind of feel it but i mean with social media my and, and the people that i follow i'm just blown away with the, the fishery up there it seems like a good it's got a good small slot drum fishery you got big red fish you got cobia all site fishable um, massive speckled trout coming from there year after year and stripers. And I mean, it, there's just a lot going on. It's like the cold water Florida, in my opinion, <laughs> like as far as diversity goes. Yeah, I think you're right, Judd. I mean, we're, I always say we're on the Northern end of the Southern fishes and the Southern end of the Northern fishes. And I think, uh, certainly the last three or four years, we've had terrific, you know, slot size red fishing. We will go through, you know, generally short stretches, two or three years where we don't have those fish in the system. The big red drum biomass that we have up here in the lower part of the bay is insane. Last year's cobia biomass was excellent for small to medium-sized fish. We certainly don't have the big cobia, the number of big cobia in the system that we had, say, 10 years ago. But, um, you know, for me, with the fly anglers, size really isn't a critical thing. So. Right. Most of my guys are catch and release anyway, and they're happy to catch a 38-inch Kobe on fly. And then you're right about the speckled trout. We do tend to have big speckled trout up here. And the good news is this, this you know, rapid decline in temperature we just had. I thought we we're going to have some pretty significant fish kill, but I actually have really good reports from the last two That's days. That's awesome. That was about to be my we're next question. Yeah, so I think we've, we've hopefully survived this, uh, this cold Stun event that could have happened here, and it looks like our speckled trout fishery, at least today and yesterday. I'm heading out tomorrow to find find out, but uh, I've got good reports in the last two days, so hopefully it'll be good next have, year too. Have you heard anything about any type of fish kill? Have, you, have people seen any dead fish or nothing really at all? Nothing dead. Uh, there are some fish in really shallow water on the mud flats, but they are moving around. They're not dead. They're they're nice. just. Uh, you know, moving slowly. So people up. have to respect that too and be careful. You know, we really shouldn't be taking fish that are uh, in the middle of a cold stun event. Um, kind of, you know, let those fish get through this, this time. But yeah, I think, I think the fishery is going to survive. Hopefully we'll see how, whether we have more cold weather, you know, ahead of us. But uh, what we just had really worried me because it went down hard. Boy, it we went were, quick. Yeah, I feel like that's the no, biggest thing too. Is that they can survive those colder temps, but it's when it when it drops really quickly and the, and they don't have the ability to go deep is when it hurts them bad. Yep, exactly. So I think we I think we've weathered it pretty good. Awesome, that's good to hear for sure. I was nervous, and that was one of one of the questions I really wanted to hit on, and I'm glad that that that's the answer. But um, so out of all your fishing, I really want to dive into you know what's going on now. But as far as your what you are passionate about, like. What is your favorite season of the year up there on the fly uh, in, the, in the lower Chesapeake? Well, that's a loaded question, Judd, but I would say that, that, that uh, my favorite season is, um, is the summertime for Cobia and then late fall into winter for big speckled trout. But the easiest time I have as a guide is really in the fall, you know, between October and November for us is, are two really good months as far as just consistency. So as long as I have a day that's fishable, 
if you look at the last three years, really October and November have been outstanding where we can get all three of our main species at that time, which would be speckled trout, you know, puppy drum or red drum and, and uh, speckled trout and stripers. I'm sorry. And you can get all three of those, uh, both those months. And they may not be the biggest fish of the year, but as far as guiding, you know, we can have days that are just outstanding days, um, you know, all three species on fly. And, um, and that's, that's probably the easiest fishing period I have is October and November. But for me, the, the epic stuff that we do is summertime cobia on fly is incredible. And we had a really good year this past year. And, um, and then I think our wintertime speckled trout fishery on fly is incredible too. It's, um, it's a nuanced sort of fishery, meaning, you know, if you took a new angler and asked him to try and, and catch big speckled trout on fly, uh, it may not be the type of day that that, that individual is looking for, cause you're not going to get big numbers. But if you have somebody that's done plenty of speckled trout in the past and they're looking to catch a, a large speckled trout, uh, certainly that time of year for me is, is my best time of year. And it's the time of year that I tend to do, you know, more of that kind of fishing. Right. Uh, I see, I see these guys like Charlie church and the guys that are chasing specs year round, Keith, not all. And yeah, you know, they're catching them in June and July and August, but you know, I'm out in the bay chasing Cobia. So, uh, I don't really get a shot at summertime spec. So it's, it's a little bit of a, um, you know, our big speckled trout come when we're fishing for speckled trout, you know, so, <laughs> right. so. you're not going to accidentally catch a big speckled trout yeah. Cobia fishing. Oh, exactly. At least you'd be very, very, maybe if you're bait fishing on the bottom or something, but, but other than that, probably not. No, exactly. You do have some crazy bycatches out there, you know, like, like Jack sometimes, you know, you have a Crevalli Jack come in or we'll occasionally see a tarpon out in the bay or, um, we had a couple of, uh, offshore fishing. My, my mate, uh, Baylor got a, a Mahi Mahi inside the bay last year. Really? So, uh, that's some crazy awesome. stuff. Yeah. Little bitty guy, but, uh, still, I that's never cool. heard of so, oh, that's uh, yeah, that's really neat. That's really neat. No, I, I'm I'm with you. Like I do love speckled trout. I love sight fishing though too. And I, obviously, there's not much in the world of sight fishing for speckled trout. But the changing it up and and diversifying just keeps it interesting. I feel like no matter what you do, if you're on the water a lot, there is a tendency to kind of burn out a little bit on on just doing the same thing or pursuing the same fish. And I think it makes you a better angler overall to to have a few different pursuits and two different a few different species you like to target. So. I think that's cool, yep. especially as a guide. I mean, sometimes, it, I mean, I know myself, I can get very burnt out on redfish uh, middle of the summer when I'm targeting them almost every day, but um, it's always, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air to do something a little different. But, um, so I, I got to ask, I saw a very, very large speckled trout that you posted maybe a week ago, two weeks ago that was caught on fly. And I can't remember the size, but what, what was that big fish that you posted? Yeah, it was 29 and a half. Uh, at my, Actually, I have my brother-in-law down who's probably been fishing for uh, fly. I mean, he's been fishing his whole life, but sort of a similar story to a lot of fly anglers where you start out as a conventional angler. If you came from the saltwater world and then eventually, you know, pick up a fly rod and then start developing your fly fishing skill set, which is certainly a different skill set than your conventional uh, skill set. And, you know, you have the other group that came from the freshwater fly background. But uh, Steve came from a um, a saltwater conventional background, but has become a really good fly angler. So nice. uh, last three years, he's committed himself to practicing a lot, and you know, he's a good double hauler. And you know, um, we had with the, he was down with me for two days, but I had three days in a row that right right before the full moon. So it's it's sort of classic, you know, that week before the full moon where you hear a lot of large citation sized speckled trout being caught and right. you know we just timed that trip uh, well and the first day we went out uh we popped them pretty good we actually had three citations including a 24 and a 28 and a half along with that 29 and a half God, and then all on fly each, rod? Day, each day in the next two days as the full moon got larger and larger as the moon got larger and larger towards the full moon the fishing dropped off just a little bit for us. So we, we kind of hit a home run on that first day where That's we awesome. went out and fished multiple areas, uh, very similar areas, though, you know, where where you had um, 
you know, structure and current and right depth and a lot of bait and we're marking fish and both on my down scanner and my side scanner. And you, and you think, wow, this is going to be really good. And the first day was, you know, literally a home run. Great, That's great awesome. day. How, yeah, do, do you know how much that fish weighed or idea of how much it weighed? No, nah, and the shame of it is I had a scale on the boat, but you know, it's, it's funny cause you know, in, in Virginia, it's typically a, you know, we, we do a link citation and, I don't know. It was one of those things where my priority is always to get her back in the water. That's a good priority and, to have. Yeah, it sure is. And and so I never even thought about it. I had a I had a scale on the boat, but we took the length and then got her overboard. And uh, you know, it's just one of those things. I, I I really don't know, Judd. I, my guess would be you know nine pounds maybe, but um, I, I don't know. It was a uh, just one of those things. Like I said, I had a scale on the boat. Just never even thought about using. And we, the other thing is, you know, you're in the middle of a good bite, and you know how long they can last for second trout. So you're thinking to yourself, let's get back to fishing. Definitely. And, I mean, uh, you're like, it's 29 yeah. and a half. That's good enough. Let, let's get him back and catch another one. Yeah, yeah. He had a great day. It was fun. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, for 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 somebody who's, who's really worked at their skill set, you know, to have a day where it confirms, hey, I, I've been working on this for a while. This is what I wanted to do, and yeah. I got it done. It's, it's just a, that's what it's all about, you know. That's incredible. So, so take me through what it looks like to fly fish for speckled trout. There, maybe first, kind of set up speckled wintertime speckled trout fishing for us in, in the lower bay. Yeah. But, but then, kind of break, kind of start with that, and then we'll, then we'll jump into the fly thing. But. Or do you have trout? Because I know a lot of people think well, like, trout don't actually winter there. They push, they all push down in North Carolina. But it seems like you know that's not true. <laughs> no, I think there was a wonderful study that was done in 2017 from Vims uh, that's available Virginia. But uh, it's, it's the uh, part of the William and Mary University of William and Mary that uh, you know is for marine science, and Vims published a 2017 uh, paper that. You know, discuss what happens with speckled trout, what, what the movements are in the, in the spring. I mean, in the fall, and, and typically you see them kind of have they split into thirds. You know, the smaller speckled trout move out of the bay and and go either to the mouth of the bay or push down into the Atlantic Ocean. But the bigger speckled trout kind of head in the other direction, and and two thirds of them will stay up in these mud flats for the winter time. So you know, the back of Lynn Haven or the back of of the Elizabeth River systems or the Corotoman, uh up in the Middle Pit Peninsula. I think all of these river systems, if you look at the James River now, you know, we, we have a, a pretty solid biomass that stays up at the Surrey power plant. And so we'll see those fish moving up the James uh, in November and December. And and uh, usually if I'm fishing the James up around Mulberry Island or the mouth of the Wark River, I'm fishing for, for overslot or slot redfish. But we'll have bycatch of large speckled trout that run up there, and I'm sure they're heading up towards to winter up in that section of, of the James, which is farther up than what people think these speckled trout will run. You know, that's up around Williamsburg. So you look at a 30-mile run from the, from the mouth of the ocean. Wow. But I think in all these systems, basically a third of the fish push out into the ocean, a third of the fish stay up in the middle peninsula area, and a third of the fish push down into the Hampton Roads area, which is essentially Elizabeth River and uh, and Lynn Haven and Rudy, uh, and then the James River system, which the Nansman is an excellent river. It's a large river at the bottom end of the James, and I've done real well up in the Nansman, uh, you know, for speckled trout. And and last year in December we had big speckled trout way up in the Nansman, and we have them up there now again this year. That's awesome. So. Yeah, it's a big transition for me as far as sort of like that November fishery when the water temps say mid fifties. You know, I'm typically fishing hard bottom like oyster shell and and rock and and um, you know shallower areas. Yeah, uh, say you know three to seven feet, and I'm not really worried about it having deep water access anywhere close. And then as the winter sort of comes on these fish will push up into soft bottom. So then they'd be on mud bottom. And, um, and you know, I've, I have a boat that only drafts about about 16 inches. And I have some buddies that are on, you know, technical skiffs, Carolina skiffs that only draft five and six inches. And they're, they're running up in areas that I can't get to. And they're catching, you know, wintertime speckled trout and, you know, half a foot of water. 
Wow. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I tend to be a little bit deeper than that just because of the boat that I, that I run out of. And uh, I'm typically having success in, you know, anywhere from two feet, two to three feet this time of year. And then they'll slide down and, and we'll fish them, you know, 12 to 15 feet. I had a friend of mine that was catching them in the Elizabeth River three days ago, you know, before this warm front kind of moved in. And he, he was uh, jigging with uh, blade baits in 30 feet of water and catching. He caught two citations. So there's some big fish that will lay deep also, you know, near bridges and, and channels and that sort of thing. With fly, I don't typically target those fish. So if they're below about 15 feet, uh, I don't really like messing with them. It, it takes too long to get a fly to drop, even on sinking line. Right. And uh, and it's not a whole lot of fun for the angler. So we typically target fish that are suspended either 15 feet or higher. And uh, and then in the afternoons and in the, in the wintertime, they'll get up on those mud flats and we'll use floating lines and unweighted deceivers. And But don't go top water in the wintertime. I don't think they have enough energy really to eat a top water like they typically do in the fall. But, um, you know, as that, that season goes on, that water temp gets below 50 and then close to 40, which is where it's at now. You know, the fish are lethargic. Your bite is much more uh, inconsistent and slower. You're going to have a period of, you know, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes throughout the day that the bite is on. And then you'll have a lot of nothing. And you got to have the right angler who, you know, understands that and can sort of persevere through those slow periods. and um, and uh, sometimes it's a little too slow. I've, I have people last three years. Uh, I've, I've had people that really don't like wintertime speckled trout fishing, I, and I understand why. You know, it's a, it's not, it's not everybody's cup of tea. But if you've caught a lot of fish and you're after, it, it's it's almost hunting. You know, it's almost like trophy hunting. Right. And uh, if you're if you're sort of mentally built for it, then. Um, it, it can be outstanding fishing. And, you know, I kind of feel like you do, Judd. If you catch one large, anything over 25 inches to me, you know, is just an outstanding fish. And really anything really? over 20 inches is a beautiful fish. For but sure. it, it's, uh, yeah, those fish, you catch one one all day long. And it, to me, it's worth the effort. So I agree. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I love catching right. lots of trout. But, but, I mean, if I could choose and I had a fishery that was healthy, closer to me i would just target big fish i mean i fish for a bite two bites three bites a day uh I, it's just a, it, it's cool it's fun to work and and to to test yourself for that long like you start to doubt yep. like am i doing something wrong what's happening and all of a sudden it comes together and it kind of rewards that you know consistency and that drive to push through like you're saying the slower periods and and, and it, you have to be confident what you're doing to be able to sit there and fish for a big fish a big speckled trout yep that's right which is which is yeah. If, if you understand that's the game, then then when it's when the bite's not on slow, you know, person's okay with that, right? Uh, and that's true with Kobe on fly too. You know, I I always say to people, Kobe on fly is just as hard as tarpon on fly. And if you go down to Key West and you catch a tarpon, a single tarpon on fly, you've had a great day, right? And it's the same way with Kobe in the summertime. You catch a Kobe on fly, you've had a spectacular day. It's hard to do. So I think large speckled trout are somewhat similar. Obviously, not maybe not quite that level. But, um, yeah, you catch a couple of really nice speckled trout, you, you've had a great day on fly. Yeah, that, that that's so true. Now, in the wintertime, um, you know, fly and light tackle-wise, is did the speckled trout become kind of an electronics fishery? Are you using your graph and, and using side scan and whatnot a good bit to locate these fish and stay on the fish, or is it more kind of a little You know, I, I am, and that's been a recent um, sort of improvement in my fishing, my guiding. So I would argue the last the two years prior to this one, I would definitely use my electronics some, but not like I have this year. And I don't have live scope, but some of my buddies that are, are really good speckled trout fishing fishermen are using live scope very effectively i do have a side scanner and i plan on putting live scope on my triton i've got a 22 foot triton that i fish out of nice. this time of year and uh yeah it's it, it it has i have become much more reliant on my electronics even for even for slot and over slot redfish uh back in november i was running a shoreline 
for speckled trout at the time and and we were we had caught some nice ones this was i i don't remember exactly when in november but about mid-november and i and i looked at my side scanner and my side scanner kind of lit up with about 10 you know marks but i figured they were a school of mullet and i spun my head around and you know there they were about 20 20 uh school up reds and so we stayed on that that whole pattern for about two weeks where you know i could run the whole that was in the mouth of the elizabeth river you know and, and i could run all over that area and at some point we were speckled trout fishing throughout the day blind cast and then at some point today my side scanner would show me a school of fish and frequently they would be a school of drum and and they were big drum you know they were 30 inch class drum anywhere from you know 26 to 34 and the water gets crystal clear just like it does everywhere in the winter time where you have all you know that that, that uh all the, the microorganisms die off and, and you have really clear water. And, and that was the case. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've become much more reliant on my side scanner to show me where the, where the fish are and, and, and then try and target that fish, um, with a fly. That's been a lot of fun. And then the other thing we do is, is depth fishing. So one of my sayings on the boat is, is Midas, which is M Y D A S, which is manage your depth and speed. And that's the hardest thing to do when fish are deep. But, you know, we'll mark fish at, say, 12 feet on a drop. And down in the southern branch, for instance, I've got some excellent areas that are basically right off the channel in the uh, southern branch. You know, they're not really in structure. So, you know, not not really oriented towards shoreline, more right outside the channel. You know, and right. you've got these drop-offs and points, underwater points. And, um and we'll have fish laying in a specific depth and you'll have current also. So the whole idea is how do I get my fly down to that fish that's laying in a certain, a certain level. And, you know, one of the things I've learned from a good friend of mine, Rudy Lavasur, who's an outstanding, uh, speckled trout fisherman, conventional guy, but you know, he's got live scope. And the one thing he tells me, Judd, is he just does not see a speckled trout go down for a lure. They always go, either straight ahead for a lure or up for a lure. And so he said, you know, make sure you tell your clients to keep their fly slightly above wherever your fish are. So if I'm in 15 feet of water and I've got fish that are stationed, say, from 10 to 14 feet deep, we're doing a countdown method on a fly where I'm trying to get my fly down to about 10 feet or even 9 feet, so slightly higher. And uh, and that was a lesson learned from Rudy, who's learned that, from live scope and literally watching his lures, you know, drop and, 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 and seeing what, what the, how the speckled trout reacts. And so, uh, I've become a much better fisherman this year with Rudy's prompts on using my electronics more effectively. And, uh, for me combining my down scanner with a side scanner where you can see the fish in both, you know, two dimensions. And then I think with live scope, obviously you're taking it to a whole different level. Right. And, uh, I certainly, that, that'll be an addition to my boat here coming up. So, um, yeah, it's been a, it's a big part of the success of, of speckled trout fishing this time of year. No question. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an eye strike Texas eye. Dave and Ralph at eye strike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. There is no stealthier platform to fish the shallow water flats, creeks, and marshes than a pedal drive kayak. The P127 from Bonafide is my choice when I want to get out on a solo trip and access the areas that I can't get to on a flat skiff or a bay boat. It happens far too often in a boat where I have redfish and plenty of water in the back of a creek or bay, but there's a sandbar or series of sandbars between me and the fish and I just can't quite make it to casting distance. But with a kayak, I can drag across the sandbar right to them. Be sure to check out the full lineup of Bonafide Kayaks on the website or at Hook, Line, and Paddle here in Wilmington. I will have a link to the Bonafide website in the show notes as well. 
Now, are, are your fisheries for speckled trout, are you fishing a lot of current, or is it is a lot of, you know, still water that you're fishing like you would find in the Pamlico Sound? Um, <laughs> or both? <laughs> well, I don't know how you feel about when, when you book a guy, you book his, all of his assets and then also all of his negatives. Right. And one of my negatives is I hate not fishing current. I like fishing current. And so if you go down the southern branch of the Elizabeth River, there's a couple spots that just do not have any current in it. You know, they're basically coves. And, you know, I just cannot stand getting in those coves because there's just nothing to orient yourself on. You know, I grew up sort of largemouth bass fishing where you were looking for a pile of, you know, a structure or you were looking for a point or you're looking for a current, you know, mouth of a creek and, uh, and that's true with saltwater fishing too. So most of my striper fishing in the nineties was, was all based on, on those factors and, and then puppy drum fishing, you know, as you know, you know, a lot of that fishing is, is literally, you can see before you ever get to a point and just think, ah, oh, everything's perfect here. We're going to catch them right here. And sure enough, you do. And then you have these spots for speckled trout where they literally lay in no current at all. And it drives me bananas to fish those areas. And I had a friend of mine right. fish one yesterday, and he caught he only caught six speckled trout yesterday, but they were all nice fish and had you know four of them that were between twenty two and twenty four. And uh, you know, I told him I'd have been dying a slow death fishing that area. I, I like to fish current, and I do. I will tell you that most of my big fish early in the season, so say November and the first half of December. They do come in areas that have current, and then I think as the as the water gets even colder, uh, you know, I think that 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 some of these fish will winter in areas that don't have current, and and um, that's a fishery that, quite frankly, I'm not very good at. And part of it's just because it it doesn't make sense to me. You know, you're you're you know you're you're running a twitch bait or a or whatever it is, a jerk bait or a or a uh, even kind of hopping a jig off the bottom, super slow, but it, it, it never makes sense to me as to, you know, what direction am I going in? You know, how is current affecting this? I, I really prefer to, to, to fish something that has structure and current. So I probably spend more time in areas like that, Judd, where there's plenty of productive water that doesn't have current. Right, right. Uh, especially this time of year. You got to fish what you like and what you're confident in. I mean, it's a lot of our trout fishing is, is current based trout fishing. Now in North Carolina, there's a lot of, you know, fisheries, like uh, everything on the Pamlico sound, Albemarle sound, Currituck, that whole area is really good trout fishing, but, but no current. And I'm with you. It doesn't make sense when you, when you come from a, a place or a desire to fish that current because it's like, all right, why, what are these fish doing? They're just kind of free swimming and cruising. But it does make sense, yep. you know, I really, the more and more I learn about trout, the more I'm like, they're so much like tarpon, because tarpon will go and lay up in these big areas where they don't have to use energy, they'll spend time just sitting over mud, relaxing, you know, maybe they'll feed in those areas, but they're, they're, they're also just kind of loafing and spending time there, and then tarpon will also fall into these areas of heavy current where food's coming by like a highway and they can feed heavily and then they'll slide back into their areas you know when it temperature pressure is different where they can kind of just lay up and not have to worry about it um and, and to me trout and tarpon are in salt the saltwater water probably the most similar that i can think of but um it, well, that, that's an incredible thing for me to hear because I, the last two weeks i've been watching a bunch of videos of this guy kelly gallup who is a renowned freshwater trout um, guide and owns a, a fly shop out in Montana. Oh, cool. And, and after reading, you know, I've done a lot of fishing out west, but then trying to compare, say, freshwater trout to saltwater trout, very similar, Judd. I mean, they act very similar, only freshwater trout are exposed typically to more, much more current than our saltwater trout, and, but not the depth. So they'll typically only lay in, say, you know, one to four feet of water. Those guys are fishing shallow water all the time. Right. With our speckled trout, we might be fishing much deeper water, you know, 12, 14 feet of water. Again, with a fly, I don't really go any deeper than that. So, you know, if I have a buddy of mine who's catching them in 25, 30 feet of water, 
Um, I'm not going to try and replicate that on fly, but, but yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, um, it is amazing how these fish sort of, uh, have similar personalities to other species. And, uh, and I would say that, that my speckled trout that, that I'm fishing does have a lot of similarities to their freshwater namesake, even though it's a drum and a trout, they're not even in the same family, but they do tend to uh, act very, very much the same. Very much so. I, I would agree. Uh, so I, I'm very curious of what are your 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 pat, your ways that you fish for these speckled trout on the fly rod because I've caught speckled trout on the fly rod. It's not something I've spent a lot of time doing. Like if I'm fly fishing here, yep. it's it's strictly not strictly, but you it's redfish, albacore. Um, you know, I'll do some speckled trout fishing. I'll do some amberjacks and cobia a little bit, but I mean the majority of it is redfish. And I think we've where I am in North Carolina, we've got a trout fishery, but it's not like other places in North Carolina. Um, so I'm, and no, I don't really know anyone other than maybe, I, I mean, you, you are kind of known in at least the circle of people that I talk to as the, the speckled trout on the fly per guy, you know? So t- take me through what it looks like to go out and target speckled trout on the fly rod. A few of your, you know, tricks that you might, you might use ways you might fish to target these fish. Yeah. So I would say 60% of my fishing is with an intermediate sink line and typically an inch and a half to two inches of sink per second. So if you look at, say, fly lines, are typically three sort of basic fly lines, a floating line, an intermediate sink, and a full sink. The full sinking lines are typically, say, three inches or greater, and we'll use, say, T10. And so T10 lines are sinking at 10 inches per second. A T8 would be eight inches per second, et cetera. So... If you look at my intermediate sink line, that is my standard line for 60% of my fishing. It's going to be an inch and a half um, to two inches of drop per second. So I really don't want the intermediate sink line to be dropped in my fly way down deep. And one of the the key um, principles in terms of your entire distal end of of your rig is that you don't want your fly to be above your fly line. You want your fly line to be above your fly. So it's just like if you're throwing a lure, you know, you're, if you're, th- you're throwing monofilament, fluorocarbon or, or braided line on a conventional system, you know, your lure is going to be lower than your line. And the same thing's going to be true with your fly. So you want your fly sinking at a, at a quicker level than your fly line. Correct. And so typically though, you know, if you think about most of your speckled trout fishing, say prior to really late December is typically going to be around five to 10 feet of water, maybe four feet of water, maybe three feet of water. But we can use an IM line that's only sinking about an inch and a half or two inches per second, and then about a nine foot leader. And it's typically a, um, you know, a, a, um, a, a graded leader. So you're, you can either buy a store bark progressive leader or you can just make them yourself which is what i typically do and then you're using probably your distal end your tip it's going to be somewhere around 15 pounds and the leader really doesn't matter a whole lot you could use all kinds of different leader systems and it can be as short as probably six or seven feet on your im systems and then as long as 12 feet you know right and so it's an it's an intermediate sink line to a, a long leader and then um all kinds of different flies, but typically, if you just had to try to pick one, it would be a, about a three and a half to four inch half and half uh, with a, a pair of sort of medium weighted lead eyes. And you know, I, I'm a big fan of purple, yellow, white. I'm a big fan of 808 colors. So you know, orange, black, and and brown. You know, I'm a big fan of of uh, all white. On certain days, I'm a big fan of yellow and white on certain days. So, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's exactly the same color game that we use on the conventional side of the house. Um, but that's about 60% of my fishing. So even last year and the year before, I had a lot better in December prior to Christmas. I had much better mud flat fishing. So I was, I was fishing both mornings and afternoons, but typically if you have, say, a, a high tide around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you got an outgoing tide uh, until dark, and we would hit these points and these sloughs uh, in, in creeks, and you might be in the, in the mouth of the creek, you might be pushed back into the creek, and these speckled trout would be laying on the mud flat, and you could be throwing that IM line, and they might be laying in three feet of water, 
off of some of these points, just like a striper would, you know, 20 years ago, probably a little bit further back than typically where I think of a redfish. So when I look at a point with current, I always think striper is going to be in the front, redfish is going to be right behind him, and speckled trout is going to be behind him. That's typically how they kind of lay. Yeah. So, so you might be a little further back than you would normally be for a striper or a red, but but you'd be thinking about that drop off, that slew that's created behind the point. And last year we had really good fishing in the afternoons uh, on our mud flats in those types of scenarios. This year it's not really been as good that way. It's been deeper. So this year I've I've been much more successful in say four to twelve feet of water, um, and Still using an intermediate sink line, still using the same leader system, so just a progressive leader down to a 15-pound tippet, and then a half and half, or you could use a clouser, you could use a weighted deceiver. A lot of people have commented on my Instagram post about how I weight my flies, and when I, I use a, a loop knot on my flies, and I like to put beads on the bottom of the loop. And it really does two things. One is it, it keels the fly. So sometimes you get a fly that doesn't ride quite like you want to, is riding in a little angle, or obviously if it's spinning, you want to remove that fly and put another fly on there. But sometimes flies just don't quite ride like you want to. So if you put a couple of beads on the lower part of that loop, it'll keel that fly. And then the second thing is, you know, gives you a little bit of noise. So um, that's kind of how I'll, I'll use the same fly and I'll change the weighting system on the fly. So I might be as many as three beads or I might be down to no bead. If I'm fishing really shallow water, then I wouldn't have any bead. If I'm fishing, say 10 or 11 feet, and I still am using intermediate sink line. Then I may have three beads on the exact same fly. So it might be a three inch um, deceiver or a three inch half and half. And I'm weighting it to get that fly down. Okay. And then the longer we get into the winter time, say the last two weeks, particularly Judd, if I'm throwing a twitch bait with, a, a, I like a bait caster more than I do a spin rod, but if I'm throwing a, a, a twitch bait with a, a conventional because my angler's not catching and I'm, and I'm catching speckled trout with extremely slow retrieve, really small twitches, which, as you know, as the winter comes in, that's sort of right. frequently sort of what you have to do. You have to be a little more subtle with your twitches, and you have to slow down your retrieve. Well, the flyer has to do the same thing. So sometimes the fly is too heavy, and you're down on the bottom, and you're getting grass when it gets it bring, brings it back up, and that sort of thing. And then frequently, though, we're not we're not deep enough, and so we may move to a full sinking line when we get to say depths of eight, eight feet or greater, uh, particularly with current, then I may move to a, a T5, which is a nice little bit heavier than what I'm using with the T2 or the T1 and a half, um, shorten up my leader. So now the heavier the sink line, typically the shorter the leader. So when I go to say a T10, I may be using a four or five foot leader. Um, I have buddies tell me still too long. You ought to go down to a T3. I mean, I'm sorry, to a three-foot leader when you're fishing T10, but I typically use a four-foot leader. And the idea being that you want that fly, you know, in close proximity to your fly line because you're counting down your fly line and you want to have predictability on where that fly is. And uh, and so when we're fishing, say, you know, eight to 12-foot depths um, or even down to 15, we'll use a, a full sinking line and my my go-to on a on an eight weight is typically a t8 so it's dropping eight inches per second uh we use a countdown method if the fly is dropping a little bit faster than the fly line which is what you want so if the fish was say you know 10 feet down and you're throwing t8 sinking lines then you're going to want to think about maybe 15 second drop your fly is going to be a little bit below your fly line so back that up a little bit. Maybe it's a 12-second drop, and then you start your retreat. And okay. that's sort of the process that we're using is is you're selecting your fly line, you're shortening your leader, the heavier, heavier your fly line, and then you always want your fly to drop faster than your fly line. So literally, when I have a T8 fly line on, I do this with every 
fly line, but especially when we're using heavy lines, I will sort of strip out a bunch of line and throw the fly line overboard and the fly overboard, everything with no tension on it, and see how much faster the, the fly is dropping than the fly line. And that gives me an idea of what that countdown is going to be. And then I explain to the angler where we're fishing. Heavier the line, generally the shorter the cast. So if we're fishing with floating lines uh, and we're fishing a point, you know, and I, and I think the fish are stacked up behind that point in current, even this time of year, we'll have that in the afternoon. Then, you know, I may be having the angler throw a 60 or 70 foot cast if I have a really good angler trying to keep the boat further away. And then when we're fishing deeper water, obviously, you know, there's no spookiness factor there. So you can almost fish dead underneath the boat. Right. And, uh, and so that's kind of the, the equation of trying to sort of match up what you might do, you know, with a jerk bait and your countdown versus say, uh, or a jig, you know, where you're trying to run a jig off the bottom, same type of thing where you're, you're, you're trying to visualize where's my fly in relation to the fish, where were my fish on my down and side scanners? Where do I want my angler to keep his, his fly? And then the question ends up being is, you know, twitching versus steady retrieve and all that. And I don't know, Judd, um, <laughs> I've seen guys absolutely smoke speckled trout this time of year with giving the, the, you know, a quarter ounce jig head with a three inch soft paddle tail and they're not giving it any action at all and they're smoking them and then the guy next to them is giving them a little twitch every once in a while not catching a thing and then i've seen the other way around so right. <laughs> i don't know it's it's that's the uh sixty four thousand dollar question i can never figure that piece yeah out. you might as well just try both until one works yeah and then this year we actually incorporated some indicator fishing into our yeah it was, routine, that was my next really question because i heard you talking about that before we started the podcast is fishing with an indicator yeah and yep so if you look at the freshwater guys what they're doing is they're they're taking a, a fly and they're running say about a 150 percent of the depth that they want to the fly to, to lay in so if they were fishing three feet they would put say a four and a half foot length leader and then they would put a bobber it's essentially a bobber you can use a, a variety of indicators but um, we started incorporate this indicator fishing into our routine and it is very effective we did get one citation on it and it's you know sort of classic bobber fishing that you would do in in conventional fishing too you know you drop it down to a yeah. fly the only difference is that the fly if you're trying to imitate a bait fish then you want you want the fly to run horizontal and most flies, uh, if they're hanging from, you know, the line and the line is relatively vertical. So if you've got an indicator, that's basically drifting with current over top of a hill, which would be a classic environment, you know, in, say in the Southern branch of the, of the Elizabeth river, you know, you might have a hill again, it's running right on the side of the channel and you're running from say uh, 15 to 18 feet would be a classic hill that I would run. And, um, and I'm marking fish at 12 feet. And so you want the indicator to be, uh, well, you want the, the fly to be 12 feet below that indicator. You're going to use about 1.25 the distance because our current's not as much as what you find in freshwater creeks. So if you want it down 10 feet, then it'd be about 12 and a half foot leader. You'd have a small bobber that's actually put onto your fly line. And then, and then your fly, because you want it to sit horizontal, not hanging up, um, you have to weight the fly a little differently. So um, I just ordered these stainless steel pins, straight pins, but you basically lash a pin off the front of your fly, and on that pin are two tungsten beads. Okay. So once you've lashed it on, that sort of keels the fly down you know, forward, so the fly is now laying horizontal. And the line is straight up from this, and you, you tie that on a jig hook. So okay. your hook is just like, and that works really well. And we had a, we had good success with that this year. It's the first year that I've incorporated indicator fishing into my saltwater fishing. And it's, uh, you know, with the right angler, again, a lot of it has to do with angler preference. Some people don't like fishing indicators, so they prefer to fish full sinking lines. And that works too. Um, 
other people love it, you know, because it's very similar to what they did in fresh water. Right. And so, uh, and so we've, we kind of do that. And then the last part of it is sight fishing. So, you know, we do have a, a occasional sight fishing, uh, speckled trout fishery and that's right now. So I had some friends that did that today. So literally today, uh, they had a mud flat down in Hampton roads and, and, you know, very, very shallow fish and, you know, one to two feet. And they had big speckled trout up on that mud flat and you could see them and, uh, and they did real well. So the, that's awesome. they caught some fish up there. Yeah. So that, you know, that's a, that's not, that's not my bread and butter. I don't, that, that happens, you know, maybe, maybe we get lucky tomorrow and bump into something like that, but that uh, is more of an opportunistic type of thing. For sure. Looking at the conditions and knowing when to go and, and, and kind of making that happen. But man, that's cool. I'm so jealous of that fishery up there. It's, if I could, if I can move somewhere to, to learn to fish and to, to start over, I feel like it would be up where you are. That whole bay is just cool. And the big fish you'll get in the summer, um, just, just really cool opportunities with the cobia and the, the redfish and, so many cool, cool uh, opportunities. Now, do y'all have? This is just an off-topic question before we wrap up. But do y'all have sight fishing for like slot drum, like year-round? Is that something that you can go do? No, at least I don't, Judd. I know uh, some of the guys that will push back into creeks at dead low tide. Um, we'll see some fish that are that are pushing water, but our water tends to be pretty murky in the in the summertime. Um, and keep in mind, I don't fish the the eastern shore so i don't want to represent what the guys do over there there may be some opportunities on the eastern shore um to site fish for reds my opportunities for red fishing is primarily from uh, site fishing for reds is from november on so i'm i'm essentially structure fishing prior to that and then once our water clears up then we can site fish for reds but i I think some of the guys that, that that fish um you know, low tide creek, low tide creeks. We do have some of the uh, uh, creeks that hold redfish uh, at low tide, and and they can get their skiffs back there. I, my boat just draws too much water, right, so right. I, I've not I've not done some of that fishing. But I had a buddy of mine that's been successful with it. Uh, you know, Pocosin Flats, Guinea Marsh, um, that sort of thing over here. But I, I don't really know a lot about it, quite gotcha, frankly. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I I don't know if I'd mess with redfish if I could go fly fish for big trout like that. It's a that's just a cool cool opportunity. But before we before we wrap this up, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to like to touch on before we we finish the podcast up? No, the only thing I, I would throw out, Judd, is that I'm excited that, that you have me on. You know, from uh, a fly fishing perspective, and and one of the things I tell. Uh, one of the stories they tell is one of the reasons I got into guiding for fly fishing is that I was a conventional fisherman locally for a long time. And, and pretty much all of my friends are conventional fishermen. And when I went the fly fishing route recreationally, I found that my conventional buddies really did not want me to do any fly fishing. So we would go on trips. And, you know, there was definitely a, a negative sort of feeling about if I brought a fly rod and wanted to break the fly rod out. And right. it, I would just suggest that one thing that, you know, it, it's fishing to me is if you've caught enough fish and you fish long enough, you get to where you appreciate the fishing is not about catching fish necessarily. You know, it's about right. the experience. It's about, to your point earlier, you know, it's about just figuring the puzzle out. And it's about learning new techniques. I love bait casting, so I'm I'm I grew up fishing for largemouth bass with a bait caster. I'm much happier with a bait caster in my hand than I'm with a spinning rod in my hand. But I found out real quick that if I was fishing docks and had to throw underneath docks and have my lure drop vertically underneath structure, a spinning rod was a much better tool. And I found that a spinning rod was a much better tool for fishing wind shooters at the Bay Bridge Tunnel back in the 90s. You know, there was something about that slack that you could get in your line with a a spinning rod. And and I would outfish somebody or get outfished by somebody who was using a bait fish. I was using a bait caster. They were using a spinning rod. And I realized the spinning rod is a better tool, you know, thrown into wind. 
you know, frequently there's just a point where you just go, hey, listen, making really, really long casts, for instance, with a two-ounce bucktail, you know, I think the, most of the guys can throw, you know, much longer with a spinning rod. So there's a whole bunch of situations where even though I love using a baitcaster, I use a spinning rod, and I feel the same way about a fly rod. So fly rod's another tool in your in your arsenal, and it does take time to learn it, sort of like learning how to throw a baitcaster takes time. So there's a, there's a skill that's developed, you know, a hand-eye coordination, a motor pattern that you have to learn to be associated with fly, to be successful at fly fishing. But what I would suggest is that I think it's worth the effort. And I think it's another experience that we can have uh, fishing. And so I was really excited, Judd, that you wanted to have me on because I think that's, you know, it, I, I'm, I love conventional fishing. I've been doing it for a long, long time. I just felt like in Hampton Roads, um, you know, we, we didn't have a, a fly fishing, a saltwater fly fishing resource. And now, now we got a couple because Chris Malgi, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he opened no. a charter down at Virginia beach Oh, cool. and, and, uh, you know, I've heard good things about him and I'm, I'm excited to uh, promote fly fishing, um, in, in our area. I think we've got good enough fishing. And one of my favorite days, Judd is, is going out and, and my buddy Murph calls it drilling fish, you know, where, we might catch 50 or 60 small speckled trout on fly or, or bluefish at the Baybridge Tunnel on fly or schooly stripers up in the James on fly. And the opportunity for a new angler to get, you know, 50 or 60 repetitions of strip setting and, and mending their line and understanding how to control depth with a fly rod and, and different lines and, and all those things. And so for me, just the, the idea of, of the conventional guy embracing fly fishing is, hey, this is another doesn't have to doesn't have to replace conventional fishing it certainly has right. for me it, it's just another tool in your bag and it's another experience that makes fishing you know incredible and then um and then the only other thing i'll throw out you and i appreciate the opportunity here i'm running no, around, definitely, running a little definitely. Bit longer time is um is is i know i'm sure you feel the same way i do about this which is you know people tend to be focused on spots you know well, i saw him here and there's two things that I've, I've learned over the years, and, and, I, and I do it every day as a guide. And the first is I fish with my eyes. I don't worry too much about spots. And the second is I make a promise to myself every day that I'm going to fish a new area. And the new area might be 200 yards up from where I had fished, where I knew there was some place was holding fish. And I'm just blown away by I didn't expect something. You know, you get to a new area and go, oh, my gosh, I had no idea there was this much water here or you did had no idea that there was current there or you had no idea that there was structure on the bottom and all of a sudden you found a new spot and that's probably if i had a pet peeve is that we have a limited resource and we have a growing number of people that want to access that resource so don't worry about whether you're fishing somebody else's spot you know go out and find your your areas you know because if everything that you guys are doing to educate anglers is all about Go find your own areas. And, and honestly, Judd, I live that every day. I, I, I love incorporating the philosophy of fish with your eyes and fish a new area every single day. And that that's probably been more fun for me as a guide is, one, seeing my anglers improve, but also just finding a new spot that I had no idea held, held a certain amount of water or a certain depth. You just go, oh man! I had, you know, I had no idea there was structure there like that. And right. I didn't expect to catch fish there, but you do. But you got to go searching, and so uh, you know, if somebody's got a spot. Leave that spot and find find a, uh, an area that has similar type of uh, of uh, factors, and you're going to find fish. Most definitely. I mean, I think the the best and, and most enjoyable thing to me, and I feel like most people would agree. Is just the pursuit of the unknown in fishing and, and and exploring new stuff and and putting pieces of the puzzle together. I mean, that is what is truly addicting, I believe. Yep. Like, yeah, I mean, Instagram and social media has made it to this thing where it's all about like, you know, p- posting pictures and catching big fish, and that you know that's what it's all about. But it really, as far as what fills your heart up and 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 fills you up as an angler, I feel like is 
it doesn't matter what other people know. It matters that you realize you've learned something new. You found a new way to catch a fish or, or a new place to catch fish or an area that holds fish that people didn't think were there. I mean, that is really the where the passion, I feel like, comes from in, in you know, saltwater fishing. And I'm like you. I, I, I love conventional fishing. I do a lot of it, but my, my heart is with the fly fishing. And so I was really excited to have you on and be able to talk about that. And it's something I really want to – because when I started the podcast, I was nervous to go – just fly fishing because I felt like I was pushing out a lot of potential listeners. But, but now that it's got its, you know, it's got its foothold, I'm really excited to bring on, you know, a lot more of a fly aspect. Uh, and my buddy Cameron, who's going to be doing, uh, hosting a uh, episode a week on Eastern current is going to have a heavy focus on the fly fishing side of things. I think most of his episodes are going to be uh, fly fishing base and I'll be doing a good bit more myself as well so um, man thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and like I said I want to have you on each season so every time the weather changes we get into spring I want to bring you back on talk about your fishery talk about what you're doing um, and, and, and kind of highlight your area so I, I'm excited to do that but um, I, I do appreciate you hopping on the podcast with us and uh, and look forward to doing another one but Wayne hope you catch some fish tomorrow man <laughs> me too just thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it yeah definitely guys thanks for checking out the podcast oh one other thing tell people how they can find you if they want to book a trip they can go to tidewater on the fly.com uh or they can call me on my cell which is 757-775-7034 thanks yeah. judd yeah for sure and i will link all of that uh in the show notes here um for the podcast and so y'all can check them out there and man thank you so much what a wealth of, of knowledge and just some great information got my wheels turning and excited to go do some speckled trout fishing but as always guys thanks for checking out eastern current and we'll see you next week later